Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Josh, and thank you for listening in today and inviting me into your life for a little while as we share God's Word. Uh, At Valley View Friends Church, we like to say that we're learning how to live as God's people, and we do this by reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. Well, today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that is one that uh, you might feel a little strange, where Jesus is really rejected for what he teaches and who he is, because people aren't ready to hear. Well, let's start with a story first. There's a pastor, uh, his name is Steffi Belinsky, and he starts his confirmation classes with this. He starts with a jar full of jelly beans, and he asks his students to guess how many beans are in the jar. And then on a big pad of paper, he writes down their estimates. Then next to those estimates, he helps them make another list, their favorite songs. And when those two lists are complete and they're side by side, he reveals the actual number of beans in the jar, and the whole class looks over their guesses to see which estimate was the closest to being right. And then Belinsky then turns to the list of favorite songs and says, which one of these is closest to being right? And the students always protest that there is no right answer. A person's favorite song is purely a matter of taste. Belinsky, who holds a PhD in philosophy from Notre Dame, asks, when you decide what to believe uh, in terms of your faith, is it more like guessing the number of beans in the jar or like choosing your favorite song? What do you think? Is it like guessing the number of beans, or is it like guessing a favorite song? Is it a a matter of immovable truth or a matter of personal taste? I have a feeling more often than not, people think of religion as a preference rather than an immovable truth, an absolute truth. We don't even like that word in our culture today, absolute. But today we encounter a story where Jesus presents the absolute truth of who he is. Now, hearing the truth is powerful, and it can change the course of your life. Truth is always good for you, but sometimes it hurts to hear the truth. And sometimes that hurt is needed because it gets us pushed and moving in a good direction, and it can lead to healing. And sometimes that hurt causes us to hide from the truth, and we miss an opportunity to grow. And sometimes that hurt was intended to wound, because somebody spoke the truth who was not a very good person, and they leave you damaged. I think it's really important to learn how to discern the difference between those with intentions who want to hurt you and those who want you to thrive. And what's tricky is sometimes those bad past experiences, they make us fearful of those who really want the best for us. I just offer you a simple caution. Be careful. Sometimes when a truth hurts, sometimes it's ill-intended, and a lot of times it's well-intended. Well, back to our story. I want to share a Bible story from the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus, he's in this story today. He's returning to his hometown, and he's revealing to the town, the people of the town, the truth of who he is. He is the Messiah, and he's come to declare the good news. He's come to proclaim freedom and to proclaim God's favor. And Jesus also speaks truth to the people about who they are. That is, that though they feel they are in right relationship with God, they're actually missing out on what God is doing. They're in a very dangerous position. The people of Nazareth must now decide what to do with that truth, and their decision is critical. 
Now, what you and I believe and do with the truth of who Jesus is also has eternal consequences. So please, as you hear today, I would urge you to receive the truth of who Jesus is and receive the truth of who you are. As Jesus says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, you are made in the image of God. He says that he wants to restore you to the kingdom of heaven. But he also says that we're in sin, and that sin needs to be dealt with. So how we respond to the truth really matters. And here's the thing, rejecting Christ is its not just a decision, it's a deadly decision. And ignoring the truth because it hurts, well, that's a deadly decision. And using truth to hurt others... It makes us miserable, and it ruins our relationships. So we ought not to be people who use truth to hurt others. So let's go ahead and read the text from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And it reads like this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing." All spoke well of him and were amazed of the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb of me, Physician, heal thyself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we've heard you've done in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet, to, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, and they got up and they drove Jesus out of the town, and they took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built, and in order to throw him off the cliff, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Very interesting story. Uh, it starts a little bit slowly and then just picks up some steam there at, at the end. It's just, it's a story packed full of information about who Jesus is. And we're going to spend some time looking at, at just this story and what it tells us about Jesus. We certainly get a clearer picture of him through this text as a teacher, as an evangelist, as one filled with the Spirit, and as a person who deals with a very tense situation. We're told much about who Jesus is, and from this, we're told much about who we are and how we're to live. Jesus shows us how to worship, 
He shows us how to treat the Word of God, how to speak truth, how to handle rejection, how to respond to those who mean to harm us. This story, as Jesus tells it, follows immediately after two inaugural events in Jesus' earthly ministry. Just previous to this story, Jesus, uh, Luke tells us about Jesus' baptism and the Holy Spirit's resting upon him in a very visible way, and the Father speaking, You're my Son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. In the next scene, I talked about uh, just last week here, uh, it depicts Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, going off to the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights, facing temptation from Satan. After resisting those temptations, Luke's drops, Luke drops us into the story that we've read for today. Jesus, still in the power of the Holy Spirit, returns to Galilee. His ministry is launched. The kingdom of heaven is breaking forth. In the words of his teaching, uh, they're powerful, and he's, he's performing powerful miracles. Prophets and teachers are all out of Israel's history spoke of a day to come in the future where forgiveness would be made available to all, where the sick would be healed, where the poor would be lifted up and God would restore his people. And the people of Israel were hoping and praying for that day. And Luke 4, in the story we've just read, Jesus was proclaiming that that hoped for future was happening right now in his ministry. And so, with this, Jesus enters his hometown of Nazareth, and he attends Saturday synagogue service, because they met on Saturdays. We meet on Sundays. They meet Saturdays. And Jesus is among the people he grew up with, and uh, they're, they're like everybody else. They're looking for God to show up and bring restoration. They're looking for those future promises to be fulfilled. And now they're encountering Jesus in a way they've never seen him before, and they've got to decide what they believe about Jesus. And God is on their doorstep. He wants to bless them with restoration, and they're about to miss him. You see, at the end of the story, they are angry with Jesus. They're missing what he's saying. So, I want to take a few moments here and describe the scene that Jesus is in when he conducts his teaching, because it's a synagogue worship service, and it might be just a little helpful to understand what that looked like. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Luke, shares a really good, clear understanding of what that synagogue service looked like in Jesus' day. First of all, to even have a synagogue service, you had to have 10 Jewish men present. If you didn't have 10, you had to go somewhere else till you found 10 altogether. Then you could have synagogue service. So, there was an attendance requirement. The service always, always, always began with the entire congregation reciting the Shema. That's a specific Bible text from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. I've read it many times. I'm going to read it to you again here because it's such a foundational piece of scripture for all the Jewish people and really should be for Christians as well. It reads like this, Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down. And when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. That scripture was said by every single Israelite every single day, still is. It's how they start 
their days. It's how they start their worship services. And in this passage that we just read, you gather, it's very easy to see that Scripture is incredibly important to the life of the follower of God, the Israelite. So, after they recite that scripture passage, they would pray together. It would be a large group corporate prayer. In a Christian worship service, we might have singing. We, we pray, certainly. But where we might sing several songs, they will pray together corporately, out loud together for an extended period of time. After that prayer, there will be a couple of readings of scripture. Someone, a Jewish man, will stand up and read from the part of the Bible called the Torah, the it's God's law. I'll read a section of that. And then another person will be invited to come and read scripture from one of the prophets. They'll read that text in Hebrew. And in Jesus's day, they would have read it in Hebrew and then translated it into Aramaic. Because in, in Nazareth and Galilee and in Israel, they spoke the language not of Hebrew, but of Aramaic. It's very close. It's not quite the same. If they lived in a place where the people spoke Greek, they would read it in Hebrew and then translate it into Greek. After the Torah passage was read, after the prophet passage was read, then that person who read the prophets would be invited to teach or preach uh, in a way that would tie all the scripture texts together that were read that day. Um, they didn't really, the, the synagogue congregation didn't really have a preacher, but they had volunteers from the congregation. And this teaching wasn't really a sermon like we're used to. It would have been uh, a discussion uh, time uh, that the invited teacher, the volunteer would have given a few thoughts and then the rest of the group would have back and forth questions trying to figure out what the text really means. Um, Always, if there was a distinguished guest at the synagogue that day, they would ask that person to come up and teach. And then the service would close with a benediction. And so, it's this reading of scripture and this teaching is what Jesus is invited to do in his hometown synagogue. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is not really a distinguished guest, not quite yet. Everybody's amazed at him. They're surprised by him because they hear the rumors of the miracles. They hear that he's been teaching with an unheard of authority, but he's still Jesus, the Jesus who grew up in our town. Everybody knows him. And so there's a tension here. And it's into that tense moment that Jesus presents the truth about himself to everybody who would hear. And they marvel at his words. And the sad thing is, is they reject his teaching. In the end, they are so upset at his words that the people of Nazareth actually attempt to kill Jesus. They're faced with the truth about Jesus. They got to decide what to do. And they reject and they even try to kill him. And it's the same for you and me. When we're faced with the truth, especially the truth of Jesus, we've got to decide what to do. You've got to decide what to do. We receive or we reject. So, what does this passage tell us about Jesus? Because it reveals a whole lot about who Jesus is. And I think not only does it tell us a lot about who Jesus is, but it tells us a lot about, if you're a Christian, who you should be and what you should be like. The first thing it tells us is that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. We talked about this a little bit last week. I want to emphasize it again. Everything Jesus does is in concert with the Holy Spirit and God the Father. 
The whole chapter of Luke 4 is full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, If you back up even to the previous chapter, when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And then he follows the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. And then, as we read today, by that same Spirit, he's led back to Nazareth, back to civilization. Never in the Gospels do you read that Jesus woke up one day and decided he had a new idea he wanted to try out. Over and over again, you read about Jesus following the will of his Father and following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the Christian needs to learn a lot from this. So, we need to ask ourselves the question, how often are you making decisions based on what you think is right? And how often do you make decisions based on trying to take time to discern the will of the Heavenly Father and the power of the Holy Spirit? This is what Jesus modeled for you and for me, so we should try to seek to do this. He was Holy Spirit-led, and he was full of the Holy Spirit. Second thing about Jesus uh, that this passage shares with us is that he went to regular worship service in a synagogue. I, I know that might be a strange thing, but it's really important. And it's, it's ironic, isn't it? Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the one who created everything, had the practice of going to worshiping in the synagogue on Saturdays. The text tells us that when he read the scripture, he stood. They all did that. It was a sign of respect for God's word. In the same way that you might have someone take their hat off when they enter a room, especially a church. Uh, it's, it's not because wearing a hat or not wearing a hat is really a good or bad thing, but it's a sign of respect. And so, standing to read the word was a sign of respect. Isn't that a strange moment? God, the Son of God, Jesus, standing there out of respect for his own word? I just think about this. If attending worship, synagogue service, is important to Jesus, it probably should be important to us. I've heard it said that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And, and that's true. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You've got to be a follower of Jesus to be a Christian. So, no, you don't have to go to a church service, but your church needs you. They need your presence. They need you to be there as a part of the body of Christ. The third thing about uh, Jesus in this passage is we're told he's the fulfillment of Scripture. And he does it very specifically. He tells the people of his town, he is the fulfillment of the passage that you read there from the book of Isaiah. He is the one proclaiming good news. He is the one proclaiming freedom. He is the one proclaiming the Lord's favor. He is the fulfillment. He is the fulfillment of all their dreams. All the things they hoped for in the future are now true in him. And now the town has to decide, are we going to believe this or reject this? The passage tells us that he's a miracle worker. That's something we're very familiar with with Jesus, and I think it's it's easy for us to forget how important it is that he's a miracle worker, that he's working under the power of God. Well, even in our passage today, the people of Nazareth want to see him before miracles. They, they want that. I think it's actually interesting. They want to see a miracle, and I think they miss the miracle they're given because in the end, it tells us they tried to kill him. They took him up to the brow of the high hill the town was built on. They were going to throw him off. And, and somehow, strangely, he disappeared, got away. I mean, that's a miracle. I, I, I don't see that just as, 
you know, Jesus talking his way out of it. I, I see that as a miraculous escape. And that's the warning, though, is sometimes we really want a miracle, so we believe. But that's not why. God gives us miracles so that we'll give him glory and credit and worship. We're to believe on faith, not proof. Fifthly, the passage tells us that Jesus speaks truth boldly, and I would contend restoratively. And he does this even when it's unwelcome to hear. I think we need to note this. He speaks truth boldly, and it's restorative. He doesn't simply speak truth to frustrate people, but to see people drawn to the Heavenly Father. The people of Nazareth admire the teaching of Jesus, but they don't accept his claims. They don't accept that he performed miracles. They want to see for themselves. And in response to this, Jesus tells them a truth that they don't want to hear. And he gives this kind of strange example about a time in Israel's past where the nation of Israel rejected what God was doing. They were supposed to be the people of God, but they had turned their back on him. And so, he singles out a period where Elijah was prophet and Elisha was prophet. And it's one of the times in Israel's history where they were the furthest from where they should be with God. And Jesus says there are a lot of widows that were in Israel during the time of Elijah, but Elijah had to leave the country and go to somebody who wasn't Jewish, wasn't a child of God, and go and bless them. And he says the same thing essentially of Elisha. There are a lot of people who were lepers in Israel. They could have been healed, but Elisha had to go to somebody who was an outsider, who was not a believer in God, to Naaman. And by saying those two examples, Jesus is saying of Nazareth, you think you're in, you think you have a really good relationship with God, but you are missing out on the blessing because you're being too blind to receive. And this infuriates the people of Nazareth. They are unwilling to see the truth of their own need, and so they reject Jesus. There's a quote from Augustine of Hippo. Before God can deliver us, we must undeceive ourselves. And that is so true. It's not that we're called to live blindly or to live in ignorance or to live without reason, uh, but we are called to undeceive ourselves about our own truth. Well, I hate using that phrase, but the things we believe to be true. Maybe the things we're unwilling to believe about ourselves. Sixthly, about Jesus, the passage really clearly says he is a savior who is rejected. I mean, let's really get this clear. Jesus, when he goes to Nazareth, he is rejected. And that's okay. We often associate rejection with failing. Um, And this rejection of Jesus will ultimately lead to completing God's plan. And that's going to lead to a cross, which is another type of rejection. It's a type of torture, isn't it? It's terrible. Almost everybody would say a cross is failure, yet here, that rejection is success. I think it's important to note that Jesus performed miracles. He taught powerfully. He was moved with the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are simply people that don't believe him. They reject him. 
So many times as Christians, we would say, you know, if God would just perform a miracle, my spouse would believe, my kids would believe, my, my coworkers, they'd understand. If, if the Holy Spirit was just stronger in my life, I could get everybody to believe. If, if, if You know, sometimes all those things are at work. In fact, if you are a Christian, those things are at work. Miracles and the presence of the Spirit and, and the power of the Word. But people will just reject. And so we need to be careful. Dostoevsky says this, Nothing in this world is harder than speaking the truth, and nothing easier than flattery. It's so easy to want to flatter people instead of ah, facing yet more rejection. I've heard a lot of Christians share about how they're nervous to share Jesus with others or their family. Because they might get mad at them and reject them. And I get it. It, You don't want to have family mad at you, right? It's hard. It happened to Jesus. It happened in his hometown with all his neighbors and with his family. The rejection there was so strong, the town wanted to kill Jesus. But let's remember, sometimes rejection is an indication of success, not failure. Seventh thing about Jesus is that... Well, no one can stop Jesus. That's really important. That's how the story ends. The crowd tries to kill Jesus. They're, they're encircling him. They're taking him up to the top of the hill to throw him down to his death. And, and he just slips away. It's a miracle what he does. He's a man on a mission. And so he just slips out of the crowd. I think it's important to note this. Okay, two things. One, nothing stops God's plan. All right? And that's, that was true of Jesus then, and it's true for Christians today. Nothing stops God's plan. But two, I really love the way Jesus deals with the problem. He doesn't argue with the crowd. He doesn't try to reason with the crowd. He doesn't leave the crowd shouting angry insults at them. I'll show you. I can't believe you didn't believe in me. He doesn't want revenge on the crowd. He just leaves. Sometimes the best thing that we can do is walk away without increasing the fight. As far as we know, Jesus never went back to Nazareth. So they've got to face the consequences of what they've done. So this task presents us with Jesus and and asks us to receive Jesus. And to receive Jesus, we must face the truth about who he is and what he's like And then we've got to ask ourselves, do we believe who he says he is? We must also believe the truth about ourselves. And that is perhaps the most difficult part. Because Jesus tends to hold up a mirror to you and to me. And he asks you to see yourself clearly, the good and the bad. And we're asked to look into a mirror. And when we are, we don't like what we see. That's usually what happens. And when Jesus asks you to look into Mary, he's asking you to see that you are made in God's image and that you are precious to him. But he also asks you to look at your sin. And that's the difficult moment because we don't like having to look at our sin. But here's the truth. Jesus means to bless you in that moment as you see yourself. He wants to give forgiveness and restoration to you. R.C. Sproul says this, you don't have to give up your intellect to believe in the Bible. You have to give up your pride. And that's what is really hard, because perhaps you've had to face truth 
when you didn't want to, and so pride said no. And sometimes you have to face truth when someone used truth against you as a weapon. That's not what Jesus does. That's what a lot of us do. We use truth as a weapon. Because truth can be used to hurt as much as it can be used to heal. Truth can make you catch your breath and feel embarrassed. Sometimes we call out someone with truth to make ourselves feel better or to poke at them or get even with them. Sometimes we call out truth too harshly instead of restoratively. Parents, I think this is a challenge we face. We're trying to figure out how to confront our children with truth in a way that leads to growth and restoration rather than embarrassing them or, or, or doing something to them that would cause them to want to hide from a problem that they need help navigating. Resist the desire to blast those near you with truth. Instead, lift them up with truth. Also, so much inner interaction happening on the internet these days. I, we got to mention that just real briefly here. Um, be careful how you use truth online. The internet is a strange place. It's a public forum, um, but it's a public forum that's really hard to get things done on because communication is very public, but it's very impersonal. It's easy to drop your manners when there's a screen between you and the person you're talking to. There's someone else on the planet. But when you're face-to-face to to a person, that's another matter. So we tend to treat each other better face-to-face. And so be careful when you are online, how you interact with using the truth and confronting people with truth. Sometimes we just twist the truth to benefit ourselves. Uh, there's a story that goes, there's a, a, a boy, and to please his father, as a freshman, he went out to track for track at, at his college, and he, he didn't really have athletic ability, though um, he had been a good miler and, and when he was in high school. He was okay, but he, he wasn't a tremendous runner, but I'll, I'll try. And his first race was a two-person race, and which he ran against the best person at the school, and he lost terribly. Uh, but he didn't want to disappoint his dad, so the boy wrote home a letter like this. It said, you'll be happy to know that I ran against Bill Williams, the best miler in the school, and he, he came in next to last, and I, I came in second. I mean, that's one way to say he was first and I was last, but uh, huh. Resist telling the truth in a way that just simply builds you up and makes you look good. Let's use the truth to be very real about ourselves and about who God is. It's not easy, but it's the only way to live well. Luke 4 brings us face to face with Jesus, who is the fulfillment of Scripture, who is the one who has come to set us free and give the hope of eternity. The question is, is what will you say about the truth of Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today, let us see all the more clearly Jesus, who is our Savior, our Lord, and our friend. Help us to receive your truth for our benefit and growth. Help us to wield truth well and to lift others up to your kingdom instead of wielding truth as a weapon to hurt those who hurt us. And help us to be more and more like Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.